0: I will be speaking as an outsider myself, being a non-European. I'm actually a native outsider because I'm at home nowhere and uh, maybe everywhere. And also I'm trained as an outsider since I was trained in philosophy. (laughs) So I'm saying that because um, there were many issues about the use of the word we and when I say we, I mean it as we Europeans, in a wider sense than usual, in a sense where outsiders to Europe who cherish a romantic, historic, academic attachments to Europe without being native Europeans are included in another Europe, which is my Europe. So. Outsiders, insiders, the word that is not pronounced is the one in the middle, the border between both. And so this is, this is what I would like to, to engage in. I'm going to talk about the question of refugees in Europe. It's a very minor issue if you consider the number of displaced people who have reached Europe as compared to the number have reached other places, Turkey, for instance. But this issue has um, taken enormous proportions in political discourse. And actually today, as we saw in uh, Chatham House's uh, review, the way you feel about the admittance of refugees in Europe really determines your attachment to the European Union which is very strange. The populist movements, the extremist movements that we've been talking about endlessly, have placed the question of foreign migrants in the very centre of their discourse as the ultimate proof of the incompetence of the Union to protect the Europeans against whatever they fear. So, what really happened uh, in the ten years that I've been working with refugees is that it seems that the refugee crisis has revealed inner borders that we did not suspect in Europe. A clear divide between one Europe and the other. France, Great Britain, Germany, Italy, Spain, the northern countries, have taken in a significant number of refugees. Greece, the countries recently freed from communism, for instance, have not. And so it appeared quite clearly that the quest for political unity in Europe, based on international treaties, administrative decrees, and so on, had not erased something which was the diversity Of national memories. And we can shame and blame as much as we want. It seems sort of natural that the the countries that have seen their cultural identities crushed not so long ago or still commemorate their sufferings under the Ottoman Empire, for instance, will not Um, applaud the arrival of non-Europeans, non-Christian outsiders the same way than others who who have, for instance, a colonial experience um, or other experience of having been themselves refugees. And I think the diversity of national memories has played a decisive role in the shaping of national policies towards refugees. So, this is one sort of inner borders that the, the crisis has revealed, that these outsiders have shown to us. The other inner borders that that the refugee crisis has revealed, and that we also wanted to sort of put under the rug, being all very happy Europeans living together, are the inner borders within member states, the borders of economic, Yes, just economic inequity. They have also revealed that the outer borders of Europe are very difficult to define. As uh, I think someone mm-hmm. said yesterday, maybe uh, Mrs. McMillan, where are the physical borders? You know, there are no borders. In the Alps are easy to cross, and the Mediterranean is easy to cross, and it would take at least eight or nine fronts to protect Europe. So it is very difficult to define, let alone to protect. So these are all, you know, different borders that have shaken with the the arrival of refugees. Now the question is, why do they come to Europe Well, it's really quite simple? Uh, I read in a paper by Professor Jonathan Ash. The six strands—you know—freedom, justice, um, prosperity, solidarity, diversity. I'm missing one. (laughs) Well, that's why they can't. Europe is very attractive, and they believe that. You know, we're here working very hard on making a narrative, but these people have got it right, and. This is probably not the way they would say it, that why are you coming to Europe? Because of oppression, inequity, poverty, discrimination. I mean, the shadow image of uh, Professor Garton Ashes' uh, description. So this brings us to the paradox. Europe is a success. Look at all these people coming because of all we have. And this success makes Europeans feel extremely vulnerable. So, now I need to say a few words on, on my own experience. I, I founded an association 10 years ago called Association Pierre Claver. It's a tiny little thing. But it, wasn't cre- it was created in 2008 and is still going on. And it, was, it has become, we didn't think so when we started, but it has become a very original thing in France. It was very original because the public in France, the the French, have had shifts of attitude towards the refugees. It started with, in 2008, with the Afghans coming from the the Afghan war. Astonishment. You know, Europe and France was not prepared for this number and this type of refugees. It was a very new thing. France and many European countries had kept uh, an idea of refugees um, the way the the Geneva Convention describes them. And this description does not fit. But nothing has been done about that, actually. It would have been quite easy to, you know, think when this happened, let's read the Geneva Deniz- Deniz- Convention and just not apply it mechanically to a different sort of, of refugees. And we didn't do that. And then, for a few years, governments and associations and everyone just you know, panicked around, trying to house those people, to feed those people, and so on. And it was a horrendous time because uh, being unprepared, there was no lodging and no housing and no care and the process was very long. It was really terrible. And so grew a feeling, we've spoken of emotions a lot, after astonishment, I would say, pity, shame, anger. Anger on both sides. Anger of the. Um, well-thinking people against the governments are not doing enough, and anger against those people coming and sort of shaming us, uh, living on the streets and so on. Very, very ambivalent and mixed feelings toward the refugees. I think of one year, which is for me the iconic year of mixed feelings. It is the year 2015. In January, on 7th of January, we have the killings of Charlie Hebdo. And not only the satirical journal Charlie Hebdo, the French journal, but also murders in a Jewish supermarket and, and murders of policemen. And it comes, these deaths come as a very big shock to the French people, of a divide inside the country. At, later the same year, in September, we have the death of one child, Elan Purdy, and the image of this child dead on the beach like some sort of fallen angel is the sort of counterpart of the shock of of Charlie Hebdo and I would say I keep this as the icon of mixed feelings and also confused feelings because refugees had nothing to do with the killings of Charlie Hebdo Uh, but Islamic terror did and so the unspeakable politically incorrect mix up between refugees and muslim terrorists because it's unspoken has created very confused feelings in association pierre claver what we decided to do was to take this the question very seriously meaning oh sorry i think we had to i be very very fast yeah all right so um, oh, I was, I was really very long. First of all, uh, to consider that the, these outsiders coming to Europe were extremely European. They're extremely European because they've walked around Europe for months and, and ages. And they have, they have sort of comparative studies of different legislation, different American, uh, European countries. They have cousins all over the place. And something more, I would say, they have a sort of existential panache that is deeply European. They have wished to reinvent their lives, and that makes them heroes of, uh, of, of, um, of our time. So they are super Euro- Europeans, and this is the way they, they see themselves. And on the other hand, they are not at all European, and it's the disillusion. Both on both sides, that is very interesting. They come to Europe as a land of the opportunity and future, which would make Timothy Snyder very happy. And they discover, coming there, not that it is not a land of, of opportunity and, and, uh, and future, but that it is a land of obligations and constraints and rules and laws, and they did not suspect that at all. And so we have to turn the narrative over, you know, it's, uh, there are lots of rules. And also they carry with them, they are, this is, a, a, I'm sorry I'm being so long. Uh, um, Non-European things that we didn't want to see, you see, they come from very damaged contexts. Corruption, violence, uh, discrimination, inequity, and they carry, they're not victims of that. They, they think of themselves as victims, but they carry it with them and it's, and we cannot not see that and so what happens in gavre and which is very interesting is that the interaction between french society and I'm going to have a red card here and, and the refugees is that both sides come to understand how the integration of outsiders is a transformative experience on both sides and that we need to make friends, that means know one another, and be ourselves on both sides, be ourselves on both sides with no fascination at all. But there are rules for that. And as far as I'm concerned, in Europe, the rules are
1: European rules. Thank you. I feel really privileged to be here with you in Oxford today. Not just because there is one chance for a Roman individual to get to university and, and be in a position to speak in front of a distinguished audience like you, but also because our minorities today, I, I think, are facing great exclusion, discrimination, and stereotyping white um, Roman people, Roman travelers in the UK, face um, huge discrimination. Uh, but we live here in Europe for around 800 years. Um, we are living in almost all European member states, speaking in one language that differs in each European member state. So, how much the European history, the various national narratives, <coughs> talk about the history of Roma? How much it is part of the overall narrative? I got this question yesterday, listening to a colleague's presentation ask myself, the house of the European history do we have a Romani minority? Family? So the Romani groups, as they are discriminated against so much on a national level, they very much share a European identity. If I can say so, we are glued together uh, as European countries, through our minorities, through Rome as well, through the culture of music, through the culture of. Uh, traditions, and those minorities who kept those traditions alive, especially in Eastern Europe. The Roman groups are the ones to embrace European identity, but we still live as outsiders. Um, this is a huge discrepancy. Um, if I tell you that some of our communities in Romania, for example, 200 years ago were slaves, is, is it something familiar? It sounds familiar to you? Or if I say that some of our communities suffered during the Holocaust and we lost around half a million people. These are important points of European history. It should be taught, I think, um, in the mainstream. And the truth is that the European textbooks are not really featuring those important informations about the history of our. As I said, the narrative of Romani groups in each country differs. So I had the chance, uh, while I was making films, to visit around 27 member states of the European Union and, and dig deep and, and visit local Roman communities and see what is their level of integration, how is their housing condition, how much they actually speak Romanias. And what I found is that there are huge differences and our communities are really heterogeneous is because they actually have different values, they eat different food, they um, <coughs> live different customs. but still what links us together that we've been through these centuries of exclusion um, that we faced. So if you see a Romani child who gets to university, it's such a rare thing. Um, it's still somehow you see it's a great challenge as I see for Europe. It's one of the greatest challenge to integrate those communities who are really on the periphery of the society. Um, I was thinking about Europe that could potentially uh, embrace all the various cultures in their heterogeneity and I hope that the new construct (coughs) of Europe, if we may say, if we're constructing Europe, so to say, will include those residual and, and, and peripheral voices and we will be able to embrace the narrative as well. So I'm speaking about narratives um, and, and also I'm, I'm telling to you that the globalization, the, the, the freedom of movement and information technology allow a certain um, closeness between these isolated Romani, Romani communities and also brought, somehow, the problems of the East to the West, so it's more visible to you. You can see it on the streets. And it's hard to imagine that there are some member states in the East where the living conditions are so bad for our communities that even living on the streets of Paris or London is a good alternative. So there are great social discrepancies. we have this division between the East and West still. I'm someone who is coming from the East. And I, I did <coughs> experience the pull effect of the accession policies where, you know, Western countries would give straightforward reports and feedback to member states uh, in relation how they should improve the condition of them, of the minorities. Now, once accession happened, those issues were last a secondary. And it's, it's obvious that now, today, when around 10, 15 years pass, these xenophobe and, and racist policies strengthened. We are in a worse position to start to think about uh, the problem than how it was <coughs> in the accession years. Um, I wanted to show you a short film which is uh, streaming, not just to wake you up as part of the morning, but, but to try to explain to you uh, what this European minority um, identity um, complex means for us, for Roma. That you see that there is actually more that links us together, no matter national borders, than what divides us. Reflecting the Timothy Garden ash uh, story he wrote, we need a new story. Uh, a new um, that representing the unique goals that we have for Europe: freedom, peace, law, prosperity, diversity, and solidarity. I will change the order. Action. I think we need diversity, solidarity, and prosperity, as well as we law. We need law, peace, and freedom. But this European um, idea, the, the creation of, of A new identity, so to say, that could pull the young generation together, could could show new ideas to them, uh, is something that needs to embrace residual, peripheral interest and identities as well. It needs to be heterogeneous. And um, I think that the emancipatory practices, what happened with the role of women in the past 100 years, needs to be showcasing for us that it's possible. And uh, with right policies, checks and balances, and monitoring the situation of Roma might be improving in this right world. Thank you very much (laughs) for that.
2: Hello again, and um, Actually, uh, this whole thing about Turkey being inside and outside, uh, it's all confusing for all of us, really, for all these years, in fact, you know, more than 50 years now, we don't know uh, where Turkey is. Uh, I'd like to use the expression Turkey at the margins of Europe, really. Uh, That's what it's been for all these years. And, of course, if you are from Istanbul, um, uh, you know, I, for instance, work on the... European side of the Bosphorus Bridge, uh, and I, I live on the European side of the Bosphorus Bridge, but work, my campus is on the Asian side, so I commute between Asia and Europe, you know, back and forth every day, so the confusion is that, you know, it's there as an everyday thing. Uh, but let me say also one thing. When I arrived in Oxford in 2005, Uh, for the first time, actually, Um, uh, the uh, office of the uh, fellow from Turkey was uh, actually at the Middle East Studies Center, Uh, but then the next time I arrived, it was moved to the European Studies (laughs) Center, so that's the kind of thing that's... (laughs) I actually wanted to begin uh, with this, um, you know, quote um, by a French writer. This was actually an expression that was uttered uh, in 1933. Uh, uh, I also saw a reference to the conference. It was October 1933. You know, after the Reichstag fire. I mean, when things actually really look uh, pretty gloomy. Uh, and uh, I thought, you know, this is um, a relevant code in terms of uh, also the context that we find ourselves in today. Uh, so we see a similar kind of uh, discouragement uh, that you know uh, uh, was expressed uh, in 1933. But um, you know, uh, in what stories does Europe tell? And you know, I like to think that I'm basically giving a story seen from uh, Turkey, Uh, or, you know, looking at the European uh, stories from Turkey, you know, uh, how do they look, uh, you know, uh, when you view them uh, from Turkey. And, of course, I didn't want to focus on the institutional relationship between Turkey and the European Union because, you know, we always see that. There's so much published on that. I wanted to go beyond that. So I wanted to start, um, you know, by um, a novel, actually, uh, the 1985 novel by Orhan Pamuk. Uh, it's called The White Castle. Uh, it was published in 1985, and this is the uh, translated to English in 98. Uh, uh, and this is the cover of the, the first, uh, you know, the uh, Turkish, uh, uh, you know, uh, version. Uh, Beaskali meaning White Castle. Uh, and in this book, Orhan Pamuk tells the story of an Italian scholar captured uh, you know, by the Turkish fleet while sailing on a ship from Naples to Venice um, uh, in 17th century. Broad and uh, imprisoned in Constantinople, uh, the Italian scholar presents himself as a doctor uh, to his captors. And after healing a number of people on the basis of common sense knowledge, he gains the admiration of uh, Pasha, who gives him as a slave to one of his friends named Hoja, meaning master. And Hoja and the Italian scholar, uh, they actually look like twin brothers. Uh, in fact, so much so that the Italian scholar, during their first encounter, uh, he almost feels like looking into a mirror. Um, and over the years, they develop a relationship through long conversations around the question that the hoja consistently poses. And the question is, why am I what I am? uh, And they delve into endless conversations around this question, looking at each other. By the end of their more than a decade-long mutual gazes, coupled with sharing stories, their identities are displaced, and who is who becomes blurred. Uh, The relationship between the Italian scholar uh, and his master Hoja, their exchanges, uh, physical cosmetic similarities coupled by significant differences of character and worldview. The master slavery, uh, as reflected in Pamuk's uh, dazzling prose, uh, I think mimics the story of Turkey's relations with Europe. Um, I think that there are three, um, you know, fateful periods in Republican Turkey's relations with Europe. Uh, you know, the interwar period, the years of labor migration, and, you know, I'd like to pinpoint it as the post-2004, the decline, I mean, simultaneous decline of Turkey and uh, Europe. Uh, these are not conclusive, of course, but I see them as essential in telling the stories of Europe seen uh, from uh, Turkey. Now, during the interwar years, uh, there were two proposals, uh, you know, by two political figures uh, for a European Union, Uh, you know, they're out there. uh, And um, although, of course, not present in the initial two proposals, Turkey was later included in them. And I find that important because uh, these years really represent a change in the mutual gazes of the Turkish and the European leaders. uh, And I see actually some kind of a, you know, leadership that, you know, uh, that we want to emphasize today in thinking about the story of uh, Europe. Um, The long-held belief about, uh, in quotes, the bloodthirsty Turk, you know, uh, was actually changed, uh, you know, during this time through the observation of the will and, uh, you know, the secularizing reforms of Turkey's Republican elite in the 1920s. Uh, uh, So a lesson maybe to learn from this era, I mean, I try to look at these three eras and, you know, uh, try to learn from them. Uh, uh, And uh, maybe the lesson to learn from this era in telling the story of Europe seen from Turkey is that it is important to remember Uh, the kind of leadership that existed during the interwar years. Uh, And um, I believe, of course, in spite of everything that, uh, you know, (coughs) Snyder said, and he kind of shook me off, uh, you know, in a major way uh, yesterday. um, uh, So it's at the back of my mind, but I believe what distinguished the vision of the leaders at the time was their vivid memories of the First World War. Uh, and that uh, they were guided with a desire to prevent another war, and accordingly were open to reconsider prior inclinations uh, and decisions. So I, you know, I like the idea of leaders looking at each other, observing each other, and changing their minds. And this is what happened actually uh, during the two war years. Um, The second era, the guest workers' phenomenon, of course, labor migration that led to the guest worker phenomenon, began through a bilateral agreement between Turkey and Germany in 1961 uh, followed by similar agreements with other countries, eventually leading to the settlement of about 5 million uh, migrants of Turkish origin in Europe. Workers were criticized by the governments for failing to culturally uh, integrate into European societies. Their integration was paradoxically made more difficult by government policies that continued to see them as temporary. And I call this the dilemma of impossibility. Right? Uh, no matter how much they desired and tried to integrate, you know, the guest workers faced a wall of impossibility. Um, And actually one scholar at the end of the labor migration period said that, uh, you know, Turkey was, uh, as opposed to the more, uh, you know, uh, widely claimed view, uh, Turkey being in the waiting room of the European house, he said, uh, you know, Turkey has actually been in the servant's quarter of the European house. uh, Uh, Yet, uh, you know, similar to what servants' quarters can do in many aristocratic households, the labor migration phenomenon ignited the fire of real encounters between uh, Turkish, you know, Muslim immigrants and citizens of Europe, and this was an encounter that changed, I think, the landscape of Europe diversifying it, you know, new genres of music and cinema and arts, you know, you see all of that. Uh, My colleague Nilüfer Göle, uh, my dear friend and colleague, uh, describes the emerging interwoven identities through uh, the metaphor of carpet. You know, you have a beautiful heritage carpet there, and Calypso has been, of course, using the expression threads uh, all along. Uh, with multiple interlaced colors and stories, so I'm not using this normatively. This is the story of Europe. The carpet is the story of Europe, really. And it's a better story, I think, than a collage, you know, di- different identities side by side. These are interwoven, interlaced, uh, really, uh, and that needs to be underlined. Um, the third period is the decline period. Uh, and. Uh, uh, I'm getting there. It's my last. Uh, and this is, you know, I, I see, I mean, everyone asks, when did the decline begin? And I see it as, you know, 2004 uh, with the, you know, Anand plan, the failure of the Anand plan with the referendum, you know, Turkish Cypriots said uh, yes, but the Greek Cypriots said no, indicating it's failure. Uh, uh, so after that, basically, um, you know, then you see all the expressions of train crash, uh, although, the negotiations began, a year later You know, uh, uh, they actually stopped, they were suspended. And I had that broken heart there, because everyone, including the liberals, ended up having a broken heart at the time. Uh, and uh, you know, I think that one of the important years is 2016, there's Brexit, and then of course there's the coup attempt in Turkey, and that's when we see uh, the decline. Uh, Freedom House declared uh, Turkey as a not-free country in 2018, and interestingly, in 2019, Hungary was declared partly free uh, by Freedom House, so uh, those two indicate the decline uh, that we're facing. Um, So, um, these are the stories. I mean, there's on the one hand the negative stories, the dilemma of impossibility, and nativism uh, uh, in opposition, of course, to the carpet. Uh, And then uh, on the other side, there's uh, good political leadership, the carpet. uh, And then I call this the mental of the law, because there's one good example that I want to underline, and then I'll finish with that. Today's uh, you know, the new authoritarian regimes. Uh, what distinguishes them really is, and we have this in Turkey. I mean, very different, but you know, in Hungary we see uh, you know this. Um, they actually use the constitution really. Uh, you know, the expression for this is autocratic legalism. Uh, they use the constitution in consolidating uh, you know authoritarianism. And, uh, you know, in one place, there's resistance, actually, against this, and that's Poland. And that's a good story that I'd like to underline, you know, the, uh, uh, that we see in Poland, if you want to end up with a good note uh, that, uh, you know, if you want to underline uh, that. But basically, uh, let me basically say that the task facing Europe today is really uh, not a utopian identity like the early Republican elite, did, you know, because there was no really Turkish uh, nation identity. Uh, Sheriff Mardin says, you know, the Republican elite took this empty balloon, called the Turkish nation, and they breathed life into it, right? I mean, we don't have to do that in Europe because there is a legacy, really. Uh, you know, uh, it, it just needs to be reclaimed. So it's not a utopian thing, uh, but, you know, what is needed is really maybe to recognize the many legacies, triumphant moments of leadership, interwoven identities that are lost to one another, like the Italian scholar, Hoca, uh Italian scholar and Hoja in uh, Orhan uh White Castle.